0: Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons Podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message you are encouraged, challenged and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au Good to see you this morning. So just why everyone's... um. Just while everyone's getting back to their seats and dropping their kids off and stuff, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard me talk on miniaturising dinosaurs and um, travelling by fish. And uh, they told the story of how, after preaching about the story of Jonah, a woman yelled out from the congregation, you know, scientists have proved that people can live in fish for three days. I'm like, whatever. I thought I was on safe territory with the dinosaurs until someone gave me fossilised miniature dinosaurs. So, uh, I won't mention your name, Bert, but anyway, um, but there you go, i uh, proven wrong again. Um, anyway, um, this morning, we're not talking about that. Can we get the slide up, thanks, Reuben? Yes, this morning we're talking about the table at the end of the world, or what happens when Jesus is put in charge of handing out the invitations. And that is going to be brought to you from Luke chapter 14, verse 15 to 23, if you want to open your Bibles and follow along and have a look at this later. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a thought experiment with you. There is no limit to time and space on this, okay? So, you're holding a dinner party, who do you invite to your dinner party? If you could hold a dinner party and time and space were no limitation, by space I don't mean actual how many people, I mean, you know, someone can be here from another dimension, who would you invite? You'd invite me? Yeah, I expected that to be everyone's top of the list answer, but, but that's fine. But thank you, gift. Um, thanks for articulating that. Um, what was that? You should say Jesus, but it's just too expected. Okay. Um, but yeah, let's, let's assume we all want to invite Jesus. Okay. Who else? C.S. Lewis. Okay, nice. Nice. Anyone else? Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Sorry? Albert Einstein. Okay, Einstein. Yeah, someone down here. Oh, (laughs) musical reference, yes. What else? Winston Churchill. Others? Sorry? Oh, okay, yeah, all right, yes, gotcha, thick ass. Actually, don't watch any science fiction, so... Um. <laughs> Roger Federer, okay. Yeah, cool. Right, last one. Barack Obama. okay. This is my time. I can actually see it. Are you sure it's not my brilliance? Okay. I think it's... You know the story of Moses when he came down, everyone had to, he had to put a cover over himself. <laughs> That's just what's going on people, accept it. Okay, alright, now I want you to step back from fantasy into reality and just think about your world now. Um, I'm not going to ask you to call out names because I, I won't know who you're talking about and no one else will either, but if you're going to have a dinner party, can you think of some people you would absolutely love to have at that dinner party? Yeah, most of us can, can't we? Now I want you to do an exercise in self-awareness and honesty. You're having a dinner party. Who do you absolutely categorically not want there? No names. (laughs) Let's assume Adolf Hitler's not invited. Okay, right. Okay, let's just assume that. I'm talking about in the here and now, Rod. In the here and now, are there people in your world that you don't want to come to your party? Are there people in the world around us that you don't want to come to your party? Are there people from maybe an ethnic background that you wouldn't be comfortable sitting down with, people from a religious background that you wouldn't be comfortable sitting down with, people from some sort of a different social strata to you that you wouldn't be careful, um, com- uh, comfortable sharing a table with, maybe even people that are sexually different to you that you wouldn't be comfortable sharing a table with. I actually had to get myself off social media the other day because it was doing my head in. Um, you know how when you know something's not good for you but you can't stop doing it? I was doing it. and. And in the end, I decided I can't. I can't keep doing this to myself anymore. And I was. What was particularly upsetting me at the time was just seeing some of that stuff that was going on in the US with, um, you know, some of the. In my opinion, some of the bigotry and the, the racism that's there. But let's be fair. It's not limited to them. You know what I mean? Like when you look at the news, it's everywhere going on everywhere there's this real division between us and them and people are getting more and more emboldened uh to be able to just come right out and say we don't like these type of people and we don't want them around it's it's happening absolutely everywhere but what was fo- i was finding particularly upsetting was some of my friends who claim to be followers of Jesus who were jumping on that and seeing this as a good thing and you know i don't like to get involved in facebook arguments so i just had to take myself off facebook altogether but it was interesting that in thinking about it, there's a temptation, I guess, um, there was a temptation in me to probably get a little bit on my moral high horse about that. But the more I sat down and the more I thought about it and reflected on it, the real I, real, the thing I realised was that um, if I think people uh, manifest this type of, and possess this type of bigotry and racism and bias towards other people, then I am people too, um, because I... As much as I would like to think it is not true of me, I have my own prejudices. I have my own biases. I'm bigoted in other ways. I don't share their bigotry necessarily, but I do have my own fair share of bigotry. And and back in our last church, we used to meet in... uh, um, We started in lounge rooms and we moved into small halls and then into a big auditorium. And there was one day in particular when there was a new family that had come to church... And as I do, I like to go and meet people. And I went down there and I said hello to him. I kind of recognised him. He was a local politician. And as soon as we met, he just began to give me his CV and then tell me all these names that I guess I was supposed to know and they were supposed to mean something to me. And I was with a friend of mine, an older friend of mine. He was welcoming them too. And I went straight to, well, you know what? There are probably some really good churches in this area for you and your family and he was like, oh, okay, and I went, nice to meet you, see you later. And my friend waited till they'd gone, and then he turned around, and my friend was actually bigger than me, and and he just said, you, that was unacceptable. And I said, what do you mean? I'm just trying to help them find the church. And he went, (laughs) right. He said, what you just did then was inverted snobbery, Adrian. If that had been just a normal person from the community, if that had been a poor person, if that had been one of these prisoners that you see walking around here, if that had been a drug addict, you would have welcomed him with open arms. But because he's got money education, he's a bit of a name dropper, you don't want anything to do with him. And I was like, you can leave too. (laughs) Here's the thing I want us to get this morning. If the people on our invite list are not the same as the people on Jesus' invite list then we might want to check ourselves. And the reason we might want to check ourselves is because what we see in the table practices of Jesus are a manifestation and an anticipation of a world that he is creating that doesn't have these divisions. They are what the fulfilment of the Kingdom of God looks like. And if we don't like what the Kingdom of God looks like without those kind of racial, social, sexual, religious divisions, we are going to hate eternity because that's exactly what eternity looks like when you read Revelation. People from every nation, tribe and tongue and they're all around the same table. So if that is not heaven for you now, that is not going to be heaven for you later, okay? That is not going to be heaven for you later. And so there is this story in Luke 14 that I want to look at this morning. And it's important to realise just how important the table practices of Jesus are in understanding this. Particularly in Luke's Gospel. In Luke, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, he's either at a meal, or he's coming from a meal, And Luke hasn't done this just because he needed to fill in the word count, okay? Luke has done this because he understood that the table practices of Jesus were an incredibly significant part of his ministry. Jesus was communicating a whole lot of stuff just by sitting down and eating with people. So in this passage that in, in Luke, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's very long. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it, okay? But it says that Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee. It's the Sabbath and he's being carefully watched. And at this feast, a man walks in who has an ailment. Jesus heals him. Now, remember, we've talked about this a number of times. Jesus loved to heal on the Sabbath because you weren't allowed to do it. So he was always making a point in that. So he heals that. But then he notices something as well. He notices that all the people that have been invited to this meal at this Pharisee's house, so important people, they're all jockeying for positions at the seats of honour in the house. And so Jesus actually says to them, hey, look, when you're invited to a wedding feast or a feast, don't go straight for the top seats. Don't go rushing for the seats of honour. Because the host might come along to you and say, hey friend, You need to come down here and sit at the lowlier seats, and that's going to be really humiliating and embarrassing for you. So I'm telling you instead, go straight for the lower seats instead. When you go to a banquet, go go straight to the lower seat. And what might happen then is the reverse. The host might come, see your humility, come to you and say, hey friend, why don't you come up to the seats of honour? Because you will be honoured in that, in front of everyone else. For whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, he says, and whoever humbles themselves will be honoured. And then he goes on to say this. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they might just invite you back and so, you're repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind and you will be blessed. Even though they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. To which someone yells out, blessed is the one who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God. And again, like most people who yell out to the things that Jesus says, he thinks he's on safe ground when he does this. And Jesus is like, yeah, but not in the way you think, buddy. And then he goes on to say this. He starts telling a story about a man who throws a banquet and he invites many guests and he sends his servant out to tell the guests that everything is ready and they are to come to the banquet. But one by one, they begin to make excuses and beg off. One says, look, I've just bought some land and I need to go and inspect it. Another one says, I've just bought an ox and I need to try them out. And another one says, I'm married and I'm not allowed, right? (laughs) So, cheap shot, okay. Okay. So the servant comes back to the master and he says, I've been out, I've given the invitations, no one's coming, they've all got excuses. Well this makes the master of the house really mad and he says to the servant, okay then, I want you to go out into the streets and the alleys and I want you to bring in the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, bring them in. So he does that. And then he comes back to the master and he says, I've done that, the place is packed, but there's actually still more room. And the master says, great, then go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel people to come in so that my house might be full. For none of those invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now let me just say a little, something a little bit important about meals and, and to help us make sense of all of that. Meals featured a lot in the ministry of Jesus, but again, not just because he was hungry. With Jesus... Meals were always celebrating something that had happened, manifesting something that was happening, or anticipating something that was about to happen. There was always a message in his meals. And in that part of the world, meals were both socially and spiritually important. Socially, they were a way of defining your place in the world and society. Meals were boundary markers. You only ever ate with people who were just like you. So it was all about your profession, your status, your income, your ethnicity, your religion. You never sat around the table who didn't tick exactly all of those boxes. So even if you and I might be Jewish together, even if you and I shared a common history, but I earned more money than you and I moved in different circles, you could not sit at my table and I could not sit at your table. This is the way they worked out how society was structured. And this is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, gets so upset with the Corinthian church, because it was a church that was made up of a diverse group of people, particularly the rich and the poor. And Paul says to them, when you come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper communion, okay, and I need to point out that when we talk about that, it wasn't some crackers and some juice, it was an actual meal They called it the love feast or the Lord's table. When you come to do this, I've got nothing good to say to you about this. Why? Because when you come together, you just do what everyone else in the Roman Empire does and you reinforce the social strata uh, that that the Roman society has built in here and and fail to reflect the new standards and and, um, strata, uh, non-strata of the kingdom of God. So what they were doing is all the rich people were coming together first. And when we think about these churches in the New Testament, they weren't like churches that we have now. There are probably about 30 people in this house church, right? The rich people were coming together. They were bringing all the best food and all the best wine. They were getting there first. They were eating and drinking their fill. And then the practice was out in the rest of the world, the poor people could have whatever was left over. So they were just doing exactly the same thing that everyone else was doing. And Paul says, when you get together, that is not the Lord's feast you're celebrating. Again, you're just reflecting the social values of the world you live in. You're not reflecting the new values of the kingdom, where it says that we are all one in Christ, and those distinctions that we used to take pride in that kept us from one another are all broken down. And then you get that in Galatians, there's no slave or free, there's no male or female, there's no Scythian or barbarian, okay, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. All social distinctions have been broken down in Jesus because we are one in Jesus and it's now a level playing field, are you with me? Right? So this church was coming along and they're eating and drinking, they're just doing what they always done, he said, and this is why some of you are getting sick and falling asleep, which was a euphemistic way of saying you're dying. You're drinking judgment on yourself and that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 11, you are taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Now those of you who've been around for a while have heard me talk about this. We're taught in church that taking communion in an unworthy manner is about making sure that we've dealt with all the sin in our life before we take communion, which is ridiculous because communion is for people who have sin in their life, yes? Communion exists because we have problems that need to be overcome. Paul says you're taking it in an unworthy manner because you fail to recognize the body of Christ. You are failing to recognize that there are no distinctions, that we are all one in Christ. That is how you do it unworthily. When you bring those divisions, when you bring those distinctions, when you bring those biases and you bring those prejudices and you will not share your table with people who are different from you, you have taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Are you with me? All right, good. Hey, that was a good response, too. Okay. When I was out at Rhythms, out at Seven Hills, the ReStore that now is our our social enterprise out there, one night, um, because we used to sit around and talk about all this sort of stuff, my manager at the time, who wasn't really a Christian, she heard me talk about this. And so to surprise me, she did a really lovely thing. She organised a big banquet one night, and we invited all our people from out at Seven Hills, and she invited some selected people from Castle Hill as well. And we sat at this long table in the sh- in the store and we shared a meal together and people shared some testimony some thoughts someone sang a song you know whatever and i was just looking at this situation going i've got professionals and business owners sitting down with people with addiction problems and mental health issues people who are on welfare people who are messed up in so many ways and here we all are sitting around the one table sharing a meal together this to me is what the kingdom of God looks like yes you know absolutely for me it was it was just a picture of heaven I just sat there and I thought man this is what it is supposed to be like you know, here are these people, they, they would not normally meet, they would not normally move in the same circles, but the thing that brings us together is Jesus and he brings us together in far more than just a tokenistic or a symbolic way. Oh, isn't it lovely of us to sit down at the same table, now we're going to go up and get on with the rest of our lives and, and we'll never meet again. No, 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 no. The significance of a meal, particularly in that part of the world and that time, and I would argue is still residual, at least in our understanding of meals, is that it signifies an intimacy and a connection that you don't get in other places. right? I don't know about you, but I don't just... There's eating and there's eating, isn't there? you want to go to Macca's? Sure. Okay. You want to go to Frango's? Yes. All right. We go and we sit down and we eat. That's whatever. But to invite you into my home or to be invited into a home and to sit across the table with someone and to break bread with someone... That means something to me. Anyone else on that? It's not something I do arbitrarily. It means something to share a meal with someone, which makes it reprehensible when people violate that covenant. When you sat down across a table from someone and had a meal and then they go off and like trash you and bag you and do all sorts of stuff, there's a real betrayal there because you just don't sit down at a table with anyone, right? It means more. Okay? So it has to be in more than just a symbolic way. When we sit down around a table together with people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, whatever it happens to be, um, they're different social strata t- to us, and we eat around this table, it is more than a symbol. It is a manifestation of the kingdom of God where we are all one in Christ Jesus and there is now nothing that divides us. We are equals in him. That's the importance in this. So socially meals were big boundary markers and of course the religious people of the day had to add a spiritual overlay to all of this as well by using food as a way of defining who was in and who was out by what they did or didn't eat and whether they were clean or unclean. So in Jesus' day eating the wrong things with the wrong people not only defined you it actually defiled you as well, and put you on the outside, and so both socially and spiritually, the table functioned as a boundary and barometer of your social or spiritual status. So let me let me change the metaphor. If it's like a ladder, the table was a way of letting yourself and everyone else know which rung of the ladder you were on in the social and spiritual strata. Yeah, that's that's what it functioned as. Okay. Because it seems to me that there is this inherent need within us, and I think this helps us understand to some extent why bias and prejudice and stuff is so essential to our functioning at times, is because we people always need someone to look down on to feel better about ourselves, don't we? That's, that's the problem. So, so the patricians in the, noble, in the uh, Roman world, they needed to be able to look down the ladder at the plebeians to, to feel superior about themselves. And the Pharisees needed the tax collectors and the prostitutes down there so they could feel more righteous, yes? That's how it functioned for people. But Jesus comes along and he starts messing it all up. He starts eating with all the wrong people all the time. And every time he did that, he was sending a really big message. This is how it is in the kingdom of God. And he co-opted the sacred table practices too. On the night before he's betrayed, we're told that he celebrates the Passover with his disciples. Now, the Passover was a a, a tradition that the Jewish people had celebrated for nearly a millennia. It was their retelling every year of their escape from Egypt, their deliverance from slavery into freedom. And they would tell that story every year. So Jesus sits down to celebrate that meal with his Jewish disciples And rather than retell the Exodus story, he co-ops that meal and makes it about himself. And he says, this bread that we're about to eat, this is my body that is broken for you. This cup that we're about to drink, this is the new covenant in my blood. And then he says, but I'm not going to drink it with you again until this all finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. In other words, this stuff that represents me and what I'm about to do, one day it is going to be fulfilled. One day it is going to characterize all of creation, based on what I'm about to do. And in that day, at that feast of the Lord, that, that wedding feast of the Lamb, that's when we're going to all sit down all together at the table and celebrate this. It was an anticipation of what was to come, that were the future that was going to be realized through Jesus' death and resurrection and through the instigation of the kingdom of God but it was these social table practices where he manifested that present reality of that future kingdom, eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. And it forms a context for this story we're looking at. So Jesus gets to this meal and he notices everyone is jockeying for positions of honour at the table, which is weird. So there's even a hierarchy at the table. The table itself represents a point of hierarchy, but at the table there's other points of hierarchy as well. And so he goes on to say, don't do that. You might end up getting humble. Take the lower seat. You you get elevated later. What's that about? Well, Jesus was saying to them, okay, the kingdom has come. And we're not just going to ignore societal stratas and standards or whatever. We're going to completely upend them all together. One day the first will be last and the last will be first and the great will be humbled and the humble would be great. And guess what, people, that day is now. It has come and it is in me. And what you see at my table whenever I eat, that is what it looks like. So get in on the ground floor now. Recognise that the level p- field, the playing field is level in the kingdom and you won't be made to accept it later. So when you throw parties, he goes on to say, don't invite the rich people and your friends and your neighbours, all the people that can repay you. When you throw a party, invite the poor, the blind, the crippled and the lame. Invite all the people who can't pay you back because that is what the kingdom is going to look like one day. So get ahead of the curve now. See, in the world Jesus is creating... It's not created through legislation. So when we see this stuff on the news and we see a world that was becoming more and more polarised and people begin to pick on each other for the slight differences and tribalize, that's not going to be fixed through any government enacting any type of legislation and telling us to do that. Jesus' kingdom comes through the transformation of human hearts. It's when the biases and the prejudices in us and the bigotry in us is dealt with that it begins to manifest in a world that begins to look like the kingdom. Yes? Are you with me? You can't force people to love people they don't want to love. That's crazy. This is what sanctification is about. This is why we are here now. We get saved, but we have to continue to be saved. And that is a constant process of confronting things in us that are inconsistent with the Jesus we claim to follow and the kingdom that he is building, little bit by little bit. So every time I encounter a bit of bigotry in me towards people who name drop, okay, I have to deal with that because I want to be able to sit across the table from that guy and mean it, not be forced to sit with people like that and suck it up. You with me? Okay. So the table can just be another place to exhibit our tribalism. You know, tribalism is old as mankind. Again, it's ethnic, social, religious, sexual lines. It's always been exhibited in one form or another and it still gets exhibited because it's how we distinguish us from them and how we define our place in the world. But again, it doesn't exist out there. It exists in here. It's not some amorphous thing that's floating around. What we see is the collective manifestation of people's hearts and maybe we're looking down from our place on a ladder at people who are ethnically different to us today maybe we're looking down from our place on a ladder at people who are socially different they don't live in the same postcodes they don't wear the same labels as us they don't have the same cars we're looking down on them maybe we're looking down on people who are sexually and gendered different to us and saying they have no place at our table maybe we're looking down our, down the ladder at people who are religiously different from us and saying there's no way that we could sit at a table with those people Now, we might think that we start to get free from stuff, but there is always another layer. There's this story in Acts chapter 11 where Peter, who has been one of Jesus' disciples, so guess what? He has seen Jesus in action all the time. He has seen Jesus eat with prostitutes, eat with tax collectors, do everything he was told not to do, and he's fine with it. But when he gets told to go to a Gentile's house named Cornelius, he can't even cross the threshold of the house because you can't go in because that will make you unclean. And it takes him having a sugar low on the roof for God to give him a vision, right? Because he was hungry, right? And then he, has, he goes into a trance and has a vision. I'm putting it down to a hypoglycemic episode, okay? <laughs> so he, he goes into a sugar low. He has this vision, right? Where God says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. So, so, so he goes in to Cornelius' house and Cornelius and his house are saved. So what was going on there? Because Peter... You're okay with tax collectors who were not kosher. You're okay with prostitutes who were unclean, but you're not okay with Cornelius. What's going on? Well, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were Jewish tax collectors and prostitutes. Cornelius was a Gentile. And so it's, it's like an onion. There was just this other layer that had to be peeled back. You're okay with these guys... Now we're going to deal with these guys. These people that have you, you've been taught of a verboten, right? They're off limits. I'm opening the door to that, Peter. And you and all your kind who've grown up thinking that you can't associate with these people, guess what? We're in it together from this point on. There's always another layer for us. So after that, Jesus tells a parable about a man who holds a banquet and he invites a bunch of people who don't want to come. We've talked about that. That represents the religious leaders. They knew that Jesus was talking about them. The servant that he sends to invite people, that's Jesus. And he goes out onto the streets and alleys and the roads and the country lanes. It's important we understand why he, why he specifically mentions that, because that's where you didn't find the best people. You didn't find the best people in the streets and the roads and the fields and the country lanes. That's where you found the flotsam and jetsam of society. And Jesus says, I'm going out there to bring those people in. But it was more than that. It was his precise description of the outsiders that's important. The poor, the blind, the cripple, and the lame. Why is that important? Because in Leviticus 21, it says that the blind, the cripple, and the lame could not enter the temple of God. They could not participate in the life of the faith community. They were forbidden from doing that. So how good is it when you read the Gospel of John and you see Jesus do that most un-Jesus-like thing and tip all the tables over in the temple and chase people out with cords? Yeah. This is an example of Jesus that I really want to follow one day. All right? I'll just start whipping people. Um, that it then goes on to say, the blind and the cripple and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The place where they were never allowed to be, he opened the way, and they were healed. See, our discrimination can keep people away from the very thing they need. You with me? Our discrimination can keep people away from the very thing they need, the very thing that heals them. Why would we keep anyone away from the house of God where it is in the house of God that if they need healing they can find that healing why would we keep them away what we do in church is we tell people to get healed first then you can come to the house of God then you can be a part of our community we're very selective in what we say we'll pick on a few things over here and we'll ignore a whole bunch of other things over here but these things you get that sorted out and you can be one of us well, if we think they need healing, invite them in and let the healing begin, I say, yeah. all right? Yeah. How else are they going to encounter the living God if the people who represent that living God are keeping them at arm's length? It is stupid. <laughs> That's a Greek word which means stupid, okay? <laughs> but there was another group around this time, a Jewish sect called the Essenes, and they lived in a place called Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, if any history buffs there okay but they went further and they interpreted that leviticus 21 passage to mean that the lame and the blind and the cripple could not and would not participate in the wedding feast of the lamb in the fulfillment of the kingdom of god so these people through through no fault of their own who were born blind born cripple born lame could not only not participate in the temple even in the fulfillment of the kingdom of god when jesus puts everything to right they were still going to be outside but jesus makes a point in his parable of saying go and invite the lame and the cripple and the blind and he adds the poor for good measure go and invite all the people that have been told for years you don't have a place at the table go and invite them because this is for them and all you people who were originally invited don't think there's going to be place for you if you don't come now The trajectory of the table in the biblical story is always towards inclusion. The trajectory of the, get you with that? It's always towards inclusion. The table in the biblical story is always getting bigger. Yeah? It's always getting bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger. So the question we need to ask ourselves is how big is our table? It might just speaking metaphorically in our mind, how big is our table? Who do we have room for? Who do we not have room for? See, for some people, becoming a Christian makes their table very, 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 very small, doesn't it? It makes it so small that sometimes they can't even get in, yeah? Because the requirements are so strict and so hard, it's just an empty table because no one's worthy of being there. But when I read the Bible, I see this table getting bigger and bigger and bigger and including all the people that were told they shouldn't be at that table, people that don't fit, don't belong and getting bigger and bigger and bigger to one day, every tongue, tribe and nation will be represented. Yes, that's the trajectory of the Bible. Blessed is he who will eat at the feast of the Lord, said the smarty pants. Yep. And that will be a whole lot of people you don't think who are going to be there, buddy. (laughs) that's the thing i love about jesus this guy thinks he's doing a good thing blessed is he who will be at the feast of the lord yep let me tell you who's going to be at the feast of the lord and you're not going to like it it's going to be all the people that you currently don't include but that's what you get when you put jesus in charge of handing out the invitations i guess i want to finish this by saying the trick is to see ourselves in both sets of people in this story it kind of always is right? We are the people who have, we are the outsiders who have been invited in, yes? We're the outsiders who've been invited in. But also, there's a part of us at times where we're the people who get the original invitation, but don't want to come because we know who else is going to be there. You with me? We're the people that don't want to go to that party. We'll make some excuse because I don't want to participate in a party where there's people who aren't like me and people I don't think belong going to be there. And this was kind of how Jesus left the, the parable of the prodigal son hanging. Because the prodigal son comes back and what does the father do? He throws him a feast and he kills a fattened calf. It's a big feast. It's a big celebration. But the story ends with the father outside the party with who? The older brother, begging him to come into the party. The older brother doesn't want to go into the party because he doesn't think the younger brother deserves a party or to even be at a party. And so the father comes out and says, I'm throwing this party. Everyone's invited. Will you come and be a part of that party? And that's us sometimes. God, Jesus is throwing a party for all the people that we don't think he should be throwing a party for. He's welcoming them in, he's got them around the table and we stand outside and Father pleads with us and he says, come in, join the party. And a lot of churches these days are saying, we're going to throw our own party. We're going to set up a tiny, tiny, weenie little table over here with godly food and and we're going to sit over here and be self-righteous. And Jesus is like, well, that's fine, that's your choice. It's interesting, isn't it, that the people who think they're in find themselves out and the people who are out are the ones who are actually in. You don't want to read the Gospels too carefully. It'll do your head in, okay? (laughs) It'll mess with the stuff we've been taught for so long. But that's just the way it is. We need to be okay with that now. This is Jesus' message in all of this. Don't just hang around with people like you. Start spreading your circle start increasing the size of your table now because it's just going to keep getting bigger anyway and guess what people the people you are today are going to be the people you are then there's this stupid thinking in christianity that says that that when we die we're just going to wake up with a different address and a different driver's license and be a whole different person and we're going to we're going to love things we never previously loved no the person you are now is the person you're going to be Again, that is what sanctification is all about. That is about us becoming the thing that we are going to be for eternity in the here and now. That's why I say, if, if sitting around a table with certain people now is not heaven for us, it's not going to be heaven for us then. God is not going to flick a switch and make us love those people. We have to do the hard work of learning to love those people in the here and now. You with me? And that's the challenge to us. If our table is too small, people, that's because our hearts are too small. We need to work on the biases, the prejudices, any bigotry that we have within us now. Because what we do now is going to last for eternity. Amen. Okay, that's me done. So we're going to have communion now, but we're not going to have a feast because we don't have the facilities to put one on. But we do have bread and wine. And again, I just... uh, Grape juice, sorry. (laughs) Okay, bread and grape juice. And... Please, it's set at the sides and at the back. Everyone is invited. You might want to come with someone. You might want to come alone. You might want to sit in silence. You might want to pray with people. It's open to everyone. So if you could please come and take communion now and we'll get the team up. Thank you.